This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless, because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morat at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there for the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while, because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know that what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. So you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Sorry, I've realised that the passage cuts off. Oh no, sorry, I thought it went to 27, that was my mistake. Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? 
Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Well, good day. It's uh, good to be back with you again. It's great to be back on campus. Uh, my name's Ben. Uh, if I haven't met you before, I'm one of the staff workers here with the Christian Union uh, at UWA. Uh, and it's great uh, to finally be back on campus. Uh, well, we are living in quite a moment, aren't we? Um, last year, it sort of felt like the world was just kind of ticking along as normal, you know, everything more or less going as usual. And then to quote the musical Hamilton, which we all get to see now because coronavirus has allowed them to release it, the world turned upside down. Uh, COVID-19 forced us all off campus and into isolation. Uh, It's killed thousands of people around the world, wrecked economies. We've seen the murder of George Floyd uh, by police officers in the US and the subsequent anger and unrest that's come from that. We've seen an increasingly aggressive China rising, an increasingly chaotic America declining, and Australia stuck in the middle. And all this sort of change raises lots of questions. Uh, But I think two key questions that it raises are who are we and where are we going? Now, I think it's interesting that over the last couple of hundred years, uh, Western society has largely been shaped by the 18th century intellectual movement known as the Enlightenment, uh, and in particular, the Enlightenment's answer to those questions. See, the Enlightenment declared that what defines us and determines our identity as humans is reason, that we, as rational beings, independent of God, get to determine who we are and where we're going. But I think what we're starting to see in recent times, it's probably been building for a while, but it's been coming to a head in the last couple of years, is that that view, that enlightenment consensus that much of the Western world's operated with, is starting to crumble. Right across the political spectrum, there's a growing conviction that treating humans as simply rational beings, autonomous, kind of interchangeable, is just simply too simplistic, that there are actually powerful forces out there that are not necessarily rational. Viruses, neoliberal capitalism, unjust social structures that shape and control us, and that reason, far from being something that enlightens, is often just a stick that the powerful use to oppress others. You see that kind of reaction against reason in things like Brexit and the election of Donald Trump, I think. To the elite, they look at it and they go, this is irrational. Why why on earth would you vote to cut Britain off from Europe? Why on earth would you elect a clown like Trump? We're all going to be poorer. It's not rational. They were kind of shocked to discover that people acted as though there was more to being human than economic rationalism. Shocked that people resented losing their blue-collar jobs and being told, well, that's just the logic of the market. Just suck it up, learn to code and move to the city. 
shocked that people reacted as though they had hopes and fears and history, as though they were deeply embedded in networks of friends and family and place, instead of being the good little isolated rational individuals they were supposed to be. Recently, we've seen the same thing from the opposite end of the political spectrum, with the far left pushing back against the whole liberal enlightenment project, rejecting a system that they see as far too happy to accept uh, injustice as long as a sort of a veneer of civility is maintained. Pushing back against a system that ignores the social structures that we're embedded in, ignores the intersecting biases of race and gender and sexuality that serve the interests of the privileged. Both the reactionary right and the woke left reject the view of the Enlightenment and its focus on abstract reason and ignoring our lived experience. They want to point out that we're more than just simply interchangeable rational units. To quote the author Tara Isabella Burton, they're pointing out that we're rooted in a particular background from a particular culture of a particular race bound up in a particular set of social and biological complexities that together inform our experience of gender and indeed life. Who are we and where are we going? It's kind of all up for grabs at the moment. What should we do? Should we try and return to the Enlightenment with all its problems? Should we swing to the right? This is my right. Your right? Swing to the right with its emphasis on natural rootedness, the sort of extreme view of blood and soil? Or should we swing to the left with its emphasis on our socio-cultural rootedness, the intersection of privilege and victimhood? Uh, or is there another way forward? Is there a better answer to the question of who we are and where we're going? Uh, well, this semester we're diving into the book of Genesis to look at the life of Abraham, uh, the forefather of the Jewish people. And you, you might hear that and think, well, hang on a minute. You've just been talking about sort of postmodern problems in 21st century Australia. Why on earth would we look at a pre-modern guy 4,000 years ago on the other side of the world? But what I hope we'll see today as we meet Abraham is that his life actually touches on a whole lot of these issues that are increasingly relevant to us. Questions and issues about identity and destiny. And that what we see here with Abraham will offer us a better way forward, a better answer to who we are and where we're going. So come with me to uh, Genesis chapter 12, uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. We've got that in your handouts there, but if you've got your Bibles with you, that would be even better. You can see it in context. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country and your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now, if you read that, your first question should be, Who is Abram? Does he just appear out of the blue? What are his roots? What's his country? Who are his people? What's his culture? And if we flip back to chapter 11, verse 27, we actually find out a whole heap of that information. We discover that Abram 
is enmeshed in a close-knit family. He has two brothers, Haran and Nahor. Nahor is married to his niece Milcah, the daughter of Haran. Uh, Haran, we discover, has died while they were still uh, in Ur. Uh, And we discover uh, as well that Abram is married to a woman called Sarai, who we discover later in in Genesis is actually Abram's half-sister. Abram is her brother from another mother. (laughs) This is a close-knit family. (laughs) Uh, We would call it incestuous. That's probably not how they thought about it back then. But no doubt, this is tight. (laughs) This is a very close-knit family. And where do they come from? Uh, Well, they come from the land of, well, the city of Ur, which is one of the great cities of the Babylonian Empire in what we would call Iraq. But in the Bible, Babylon is not just another empire, another place. It's actually the epitome of rebellion against God. In fact, uh, earlier on in chapter 11, we come across the uh, episode with the Tower of Babel, where the people who found the city of Babylon declare, come, let us build our city, ourselves a city, with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So instead of being content to be creatures made in the image of God, destined to rule the world under him, the people of Babel, Babylon, try to become like God, trying to determine their own identity and destiny. It's a very enlightenment approach to things. But their rebellion against God doesn't lead to enlightenment. It leads to darkness. Their languages get confused. They get scattered across the land. It might sound a little bit like the enlightenment, but if you've been reading the Bible through from the start, it also sounds an awful lot like Genesis chapter 3, where people, Adam and Eve, the first people, rebel against God. They decide that they want to become like God, knowing good and evil, even though they've actually already been made in the image of God. They want to be independent from him. They rebel against him and God responds by cutting them off from the tree of life for rebelling against him. We see that in Genesis 3 and we see here in chapter 11 him confusing the people's language at Babel and scattering them across the land. And that's the culture that Abram comes from. Who is Abram? Well, he's not some abstract, interchangeable, idealised, rational being. Nor is he some sort of mythological archetype. No, he's a particular person. It actually matters who Abram is. He's not just a generic character. It matters that he is the particular person that he is. Biologically, he's a man from the fertile crescent. But he's married to an infertile woman. He's rooted in a tight network of blood relationships, but he's unable to have children of his own. Socially, he's embedded in the Babylonian culture, in all its idolatry and rebellion against God. This is Abraham's identity. This shapes his destiny. And yet it's to this particular man that the Lord appears. 
And what does he say to Abraham, rooted as he is in his land and his family and his society? Well, God speaks to him and he says, leave. Go. Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now, if you've ever had to do that, you know that that's tough, don't you? Some of you are international students. You have had to uproot yourselves from your own family and culture and society. Move to a different nation. And it's difficult. It's a big call to leave behind everything that identifies you as you. The place where you fit. That gives you your identity and shapes your destiny. It's a tough call. But notice as well that what God is saying here undermines our three competing views of who we are and where we're going. Firstly, it undermines the Enlightenment view of identity and destiny because what happens here is not based on reason. It's based on divine revelation. Don't get me wrong, it's not that what happens between God and Abraham is irrational. I mean, if the creator of the universe turns up to you and makes promises, well, then it's entirely rational to believe him. I mean, if he's created the universe, he can certainly make Abram into a great nation. It's not anti-rational. But nor is it determined by Abram's reason. It's not like Abraham sort of sits down independent of God and kind of nuts all this out for himself and goes, well, the logical first step to becoming a great nation, which is what I would like to become, is to move with my infertile wife to the other side of the fertile crescent. Now, he doesn't work this out for himself. It's not the pondering of Abraham that shapes this. It's the promises of God. Not reason, but revelation. But if it undermines the Enlightenment view of humans... Uh, This also radically undermines the belief that either our nature or our nurture determine our identity and destiny. It's not that those things aren't important. Abraham is shaped by his family and his land, his pagan culture and society. We'll see that come out a bit more in in a moment. And the Lord isn't uprooting him from those so he can exist in some kind of socio-biological vacuum. No, He's uprooting him to create a new family, a new nation, a new culture, a new identity and destiny that's based not on Abraham's past, not on his present, but on God's promises about the future. See it there in verse 2. I'll make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Did you notice there's a lot of blessing going on? God intends to bless Abram. Uh, Today we might actually use the language of privilege. God intends to privilege Abram. To make him the kind of person that you look at and go, Oh man, I wish I was that guy. Man, he has got it good. But notice here that Abram's privilege is not for himself alone. God doesn't privilege him so that Abram can oppress and victimise others. No, quite the opposite. God intends to privilege Abram so that others might share his privilege. I will bless you, he says. I will make your name great 
and you will be a blessing. All the people on earth will be blessed through you. How does Abraham respond to this promise? Well, he trusts the Lord. Instead of clinging to his identity and destiny that's determined by his family and nation, his society, or even his own independent reasoning, he entrusts his identity and his destiny to the Lord. You see that in the fact that he acts based on what God has promised. When God says go, he actually gets up and goes. Now, it's critical at this point to realise that although Abraham does well here to trust God, he's not a good guy. (laughs) He is not the hero of the story. Uh, Take a look at verse 5, for instance. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they'd accumulated and the people they'd acquired in Haran. Now, it's easy just to gloss over that, but wait a minute, read it again. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they'd accumulated and the people they'd acquired. The people they'd acquired in Haran? What? Wait, what? What does that tell you about Abram? He's a slave owner. Now, we need to be careful not to equate ancient slavery with the transatlantic slave trade, the modern transatlantic slave trade, because they're often quite different. But Abram totally owns people. He owns them. Now, people in Abram's culture would probably see that as a sign of success. Well, big man owns other people. But hopefully it makes you cock an eyebrow. (laughs) Especially when we've read only 10 chapters earlier that God made people in his image to rule the world under him. Not to be slaves, but to be rulers. Not to enslave other people, but to rule the world well under God. Abram's not a good guy. We read in verses 6 to 9 that Abram travels through the land of Canaan, that he builds an altar at Shechem, where he hears from the Lord, uh, and at Bethel, where he calls on the name of the Lord. And then he continues down uh, south towards the Negev Desert. And that all sounds pretty positive, actually. Uh, He's travelled the length of the land that God has promised to him from north to south. But then from verse 10, things really go south. See, God has promised Abram the land, but we're told that there's a famine in the land. And what does Abram do? Does he say, no, God's promised me this land, I'm going to stay here? No, he just gets up and leaves. It's not a great look when God's just promised the land to him. But it gets worse. Verse 11, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. You think, hey, excellent. Good work, Abram. Bonus points for you. Telling your wife that you love her, very good, very impressive. But (laughs) then he goes on. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they'll kill me, but let you live. Say, you are my sister, so that I'll be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. Now, like I said before, Sarah is actually Abram's half-sister, so it's not technically a lie, but it kind of is, isn't it? It really is. 
She's his wife. But instead of protecting his wife, protecting his bride, he just abandons her to save his own skin. Verse 14, when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was a very beautiful woman. And when when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, more male and female servants, and camels. You think, well, what are we seeing here? God's promised Abram land, offspring, and to be a blessing to all nations. But now the land is abandoned. Offspring? Well, his wife's in Pharaoh's harem. Not much chance of that. And the nations, are they blessed because of Abram? No, quite the opposite. Egypt is cursed. See there in verse 17. The Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. Abram is not the hero of this story. In fact, he comes off looking considerably worse than Pharaoh. Pharaoh's horrified about what's happened. In fact, we know that adultery was illegal, uh, punishable by death in Egypt at the time. Pharaoh cries out, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Now, in all this, I don't think Abraham's actually stopped trusting in the promises of God. But I think what he's done is assume that their fulfilment kind of depends on him. The Lord's promised me this land, but there's a famine, so the rational thing to do is to leave. The Lord's promised me offspring, but I'm in a foreign country where they might kill me for my wife and... So the rational thing is to abandon her. I mean, after all, she is infertile. It's not like I'm going to have any kids through her. If I'm going to have kids, the critical thing is for me to stay alive. That's just logic. The Lord's promised to bless all the nations through me, but surely that's in the future and the rational thing is to stay quiet and let Egypt suffer now. So Abraham's decisions are all very reasonable, very sensible, very rational. They're also profoundly ungodly, immoral and wrong. He's reasoning, but he's not reasoning rightly because he's reasoning independently of God. He believes God's promises, but he thinks it's up to him to bring them about. And that's how you end up thinking that the end justifies the means. I think we often see it with Christians in politics, don't we? They have an idea of a Christian society. They've read their Bible. They know good things that God would like. And then they think it's up to them to bring it about. And they'll sacrifice anything. They'll go to any lengths to get what they want and end up doing profoundly ungodly things. They make a mess of it all, just like Abram did. But then right at the end of the chapter, the Lord starts to undo the mess that Abram has created by doing things his own way. And so the last verse of the chapter, verse 20, is kind of like the joke about what do you get if you play a country and western song backwards? You get your house back, you get your wife back, you get your dog back. 
Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Abram's made a mess of things. No land, no wife, no blessing to the nations. But the Lord ensures that Abram returns to Canaan with his wife, materially blessed, and leaving Egypt with a blessing by lifting the curse. The fulfilment of God's promises to create a new identity and destiny for Abram don't depend on Abram's independent reason or even on his morality, his goodness. It depends on God, God and his faithfulness. And the Lord is committed not only to the ends of his promise, he's committed to the means of bringing them about. He's going to do it his way. So God does create a new nation. Spoilers, this is what happens. God creates a new nation. He gives land and offspring to Abram. He creates a new society and culture. He reveals his laws so that people can reason rightly about life. But Israel, in their rebellion against God, their determination to be independent, keeps stuffing it up. But even in their failure, which is part of God's plan, they point towards the ultimate fulfilment of God's promise. Abram and Israel point to Jesus. You see a lot of this uh, play out in Philippians chapter 2, that trusting the Lord, God the Son left his home country of heaven and his father's household, and he came to the land that had been promised to him, our world. Instead of clinging to his position of power and privilege, he took on the nature of a slave. Not only did he trust the father's promises, he trusted his way of bringing them about. Instead of leaving the land, earth, that God had promised him, this creation, uh, in order to avoid suffering, Jesus stayed. And in his innocence, he was murdered by law enforcement, slowly, deliberately suffocated on a cross. Instead of abandoning his bride, the church, to save his own life like Abram did, Jesus gave up his life to save her. And in taking the punishment we deserve for our rebellion against God, and in rising from the dead and being seated at God's right hand in heaven, Jesus hasn't brought a curse on the nations. Quite the opposite. All peoples on earth are blessed through him. See, Jesus is the offspring of Abram who receives the promises that God made all the way back then, 4,000 years ago. Jesus has inherited the land that the Lord promised him. Not just Canaan, but the whole creation. His offspring are increasing day by day as people from all nations turn to him. And we're blessed as we come to share in his blessings, as we get to share in his identity as children of God and his destiny as rulers over the new creation. Who are we and where are we going? Well, I think this is the way forward. This is the answer to who we are and where we're going. It's not the Enlightenment with its rejection of God and its insistence on our own independent reason. It's not the reactionary right which roots our identity and destiny in blood and soil. Nor is it the woke left with its emphasis on intersecting privileges and prejudices of culture. Now, they all claim to show us who we are and where we're going but they all ignore the promises of God fulfilled in Christ. And they all leave us trapped by our own evil, 
simultaneously victims and perpetrators, still facing death and the terrifying perfect justice of God. But in Jesus, God uproots us. He commands us to leave our old identity, leave our old destiny behind so that we can be rooted and established in him, sharing in his privilege our identity, children of God, our destiny, eternal life, ruling the world under him. And how do we get all that? How do we share in the blessings foreshadowed by Abram and fulfilled in Jesus? How do we gain this new identity and destiny? Well, the same way Abram did. He points towards us, how we receive the promises of God. The same way you receive any promise, simply by trusting it, trusting the promises of God. And if we do that, we can be sure of who we are and where we're going. So will you trust God's promises in Jesus? Will you let him determine your identity and destiny. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you that you don't leave us trapped by our nature and our nurture, but that you offer us a new identity and a new destiny in Christ Jesus. The forgiveness of our sins, the transformation of our hearts, part of a new people, your people, headed for a new land, the new creation. Father, please help us to trust Jesus and to share in the blessings that you've poured out on him. Amen.